This podcast was produced in partnership with Post Industrial Media. Post Industrial produces original journalism in podcast, print, online, and video, covering communities in transition around the world. Join our community today by visiting postindustrial.com. A heads up to listeners, this episode features gunshots, like a lot of them, and right away. It also deals briefly with suicide. Okay, here we go. Ready? Yeah. Threat! It's October on Pennsylvania's Allegheny Plateau, and eight guys are at a makeshift shooting range deep in the woods. They range widely in age. The youngest is just 22. The oldest is 54. Well, I was slow on the draw, I know that. Yeah, you were slow on the draw. I mean, that's... There's a chill in the air. Yellowing leaves coat the muddy ground. Christian Yingling is leading this weapons training. People get so focused on, you know, dumping that mag and throwing another mag in that when you pulled out, you didn't even pay attention to where your first shot went. The men, and they are all men, are looking across the clearing at paper targets stapled to wooden supports. They're all in military uniforms with name patches, body armor, rifle magazines poking out of chest pouches, and holstered sidearms. And they've got military-style semi-automatic rifles, mostly AR-15s, slung across their chests. Fitness levels vary widely, as does marksmanship. Threat! Yingling tells the guys how to get into a proper shooting stance and tries to get them to relax when they squeeze the trigger. Whoa, dude, you're, you're shaking like a dog shitting razor blades. Yeah, I think what's, I'm getting lackadaisical with my grip. Of course, you get lackadaisical, mm-hmm. what's that? When you come down onto that weapon, look. You come down on that weapon, jam it, boom. Yeah. Make sure you jam up into it. Right now, Yingling is leading the men through tactical weapons training. This drill is called 1R1. That stands for one shot, reload, one shot. The men have to quickly draw their pistol, shoot, reload, and shoot again, all while staying on target. Yingling is not impressed with what he sees. He missed what he was aiming at there. You know what I mean? If that was a headshot, he, he missed the dude's head. The fictional human who still has a head is meant to be an attacker. After the pistol drills, they move on to rifle training. All right, go ahead. Burn that mag as fast as you can. Going hot, put your ears on. So, what are they preparing for? If you saw these guys all kitted out in the woods, or, more likely, at a protest, you'd be excused if you mistook them for soldiers. And if it seems like these guys are preparing for war, well, they're not not preparing for war. But this isn't the Army, or the Marines, or even a National Guard weekend drill. It's the Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia, and they might be coming to a town near you, whether or not you want them there. I'm Heath Drusen, and this is Extremely American. A look inside militias and other far-right groups that are trying to remake America in their absolutist image. Episode 1, Militia's Intent.
cold rain is dousing the Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia's camp. A smattering of tents sag in the downpour, and smoke rises from a struggling campfire. Just before the skies opened up, one of the militiamen hung two flags between a couple trees. One, the red, white, and blue American flag. The other one, right next to it at equal height, is the Gadsden flag. If that name doesn't ring a bell, you'd probably recognize it if you saw it. It's the yellow flag with the coiled timber rattlesnake emblazoned with the phrase, Don't Tread on Me. It dates back to the Revolutionary War, but it's gained new cachet as a main symbol of the far right. The Gadsden flag is now a prominent feature at almost every militia, gun rights, and even anti-vaccine rally. Bob Gardner, the number two in command of the Pennsylvania Volunteers, he's the guy hanging the Gadsden flag. What does it mean to you? It means, uh, tread on those who tread on you, basically. Just like, uh, got a shirt at home uh, from the Killdozer. Uh, you know that story of the guy in Greensleek, Colorado, years ago. It was Granby, Colorado, but close enough. And the Killdozer, that's one of those stories I've heard so many times from militia members. And I think it illustrates how people in the movement see themselves. So indulge me, if you will, and let's take a detour to 2004 in the small mountain town of Granby, where this guy named Marvin Hemeyer modified a bulldozer into basically a tank and went on a revenge mission. It will shine a light on what motivates guys like Bob Gardner. Hemeyer was a 52-year-old muffler repair shop owner. He had long-standing disputes with the Granby local government and a neighboring concrete company. Basically, he'd been fighting a years-long zoning battle with both. Eventually, Hemeyer lost and was facing an $80,000 fee to comply with an order to hook up to Granby's sewage system. He did not react well. Before his rampage, he recorded hours of tape as a kind of manifesto and statement of grievances. Here's a snippet. You meddled in my business and took what I deserved away. You took advantage of my good nature. And another thing you should learn is that when you visit evil upon someone, be assured it will revisit you. And that is what is happening. The story has been retold and mistold so many times, I thought I'd rely on someone who was there. My name is uh, Patrick Brower. I'm the former uh, managing editor and publisher of the uh, Sky High News in Granby, Colorado. And of course, you, you've written a, a book on that. On oh, the- right. I'm sorry. That's yeah, okay. I wrote a book called uh, Killdozer, The True Story of the Colorado Bulldozer Rampage. Hemeyer spent 18 months modifying a bulldozer into a tank. He attached roughly 25 tons of concrete and steel to this uh, bulldozer. He also had armed it. He had a 50 caliber rifle in the rear, 30 caliber in the front, and a 223 semi-automatic rifle. I think it was on his right side. And then he was ready. Brower was at his newspaper office in downtown Granby when the rampage began. Right around 2.30 in the afternoon on June 4th, Marv's uh, 85-ton bulldozer tank burst out of a steel building where he had built it in western Granby, and Marv was driving it. First on Hemeyer's hit list was his neighbor, a guy named Cody, the cement plant guy. He attacked a concrete batch plant and its operations there, completely destroying two buildings. While there, he uh, engaged in a, uh, a battle with the owner of the concrete batch plant who tried to stop him with a uh, front-end loader. Cody was unhurt, but Hemeyer was far from finished. And by this time, law enforcement was on the scene, trying to stop him. In helicopter news footage, you can see officers trying in vain to stop Hemeyer. 
Home video rolls as police open fire on a one-man wrecking crew. The man at the controls is bent on destruction, pummeling a police car here and rolling through the mountain town of Granby, Colorado, destroying buildings and trading gunfire with police. Brower said multiple officers jumped on the killdozer, trying in vain to disable it. In one news report, a reporter took cover during a live shot. They are firing some shots. Now there goes another shot. They got a really big, high-powered rifle they're trying to pierce the metal with. A guy even threw a stun grenade down one of the ports, but Hemeyer was undeterred. As he kept plowing the killdozer through walls and storefronts, police bullets plinked harmlessly off the armor. He proceeded up into the town and then turned left and destroyed a building owned by Maple Street Builders. And then he went further into town and then proceeded to just completely destroy the Gravy Town Hall, where there was also a library in the basement. Just a couple minutes before the attack, a group of kids were at that library for a story hour. They barely escaped with their lives. Shortly after leveling City Hall, Hemeyer turned towards Sky High News, where Patrick Brower was furiously reporting on the attack. As soon as he got to our building, he took a sharp right turn, smashed into the front of the building. I was standing in there with another editor. I mean, literally, the building was falling down around us as we ran out of the back of the building. But I ran away because I started hearing the whiz and zing of bullets. Those were not from Marv, those were from police shooting at the dozer. And I realized that I could easily be hit by anything at that point, so I ran away. The only thing that stopped Hemeyer was that his engine overheated, and he got stalled in a building he had destroyed. At that point, he took his own life. After two hours of the surreal demolition derby and $7 million worth of damage, that was where the saga of the killdozer ended. But the legend of Marvin Hemeyer has lived on long past the man. I knew the second the bulldozer slammed into my building and almost killed me, by the way, that I was on the wrong side of this story as far as general popular public perception, no matter what the facts were. How did I know that? Well, it looked like little guy fighting back at the establishment. And gee, isn't he a hero because he's getting the little guy getting back at all the bad guys. Plus, he did it in such a spectacular way. Brower was right. Hemeyer had become an emblem of the righteous resistance for the far right. It just fits into this whole trope that is frequently presented in our media everywhere that somehow government is bad and out to get you and how satisfying to get back at government in this kind of a way if you really want to buy into that argument. And boy, I think a lot of people buy into it all the time. Back at camp, deep in the woods of western Pennsylvania, that's how Bob Gardner, the militiaman hanging the flags, feels. It's a sad story. It is a sad story. But it was one man that was point pushed to the brink of, don't fuck with me. And that's basically what he did. He went after those who fucked with him. And, and he did it. And he tried to do it within the letter of the law. And then he took matters in his own hands. I mean, it's more than a sad story, right? It's a frightening story. In reality, the fact that no one other than Marvin Hemeyer was killed in his rampage was a minor miracle. But a lot of retellings of the story omit key details. These stories say Hemeyer carefully avoided hurting anyone. But that is simply not true, as you hear from Brower and police accounts. It could have easily been a massacre. But in militia circles, Hemeyer remains the hero of this story. Here's Gardner again. I got a t-shirt with a killdozer on it. It says, tread on those who tread on you. <laughs> And it looks like a Gadsden, but it has a, kill, it has a bulldozer, the killdozer on it. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty cool. 
The Killdozer Rampage is a story people on the far right like to tell outsiders and potential recruits to explain themselves. Sure, it's a story about Marvin Hemeyer, Colorado vigilante, but it's also a story about the storyteller. They're saying we are all Marvin Hemeyer and we can fight the government, but we'll have a better outcome if we stick together. And they have a point. We've seen it happen in recent years. Militiamen have flocked to a ranch and a wildlife refuge and squared off against the federal government. And for the most part, they've won. These stories with their heroes and martyrs form the mythology key to the movement's reason for being. They're crucial because they show that all of this The guns, the training, the rallies, it's not for show. The stories are proof to members that these groups are necessary. The storytellers, like the militia members I'm talking to here, they're part of what's known as the Patriot Movement. That's an umbrella term for groups like the Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia. But it's grown to include national groups, like the 3% and Oath Keepers Militias. Proud Boys and Preppers also Ammon Bundy's People's Rights Network. More on a number of those groups in future episodes. Even the conspiracy-minded John Birch Society and anti-vaxxers have banded together under this increasingly broad label. It's a loose-knit group with many leaders and no central command. But they mostly agree on two things. Extremely limited powers for government and virtually no restrictions on guns. That's how Gardner and Christian Yingling see their militia. For the rest of the episode, we'll follow them as they train and become self-appointed security guards at protests around the country. It's the kind of thing a lot of armed far-right groups are doing. Yingling, the leader of the Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia, says it's necessary to fight back against tyranny, at least as they define tyranny. Some people who, who aren't comfortable with you guys will say, well, that's, you know, prepping for violence, and, 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 and they would say perhaps making it more likely. Not necessarily making it more likely. What I tell people when it comes to how it is we work with or against law enforcement What we do is a direct result of their actions, not ours. Okay, we don't go looking for trouble. We respond to it. Case in point, I have stood against the government and I have stood for the government. Gardner and Yingling have been working together as militia leaders for seven years. Gardner is 54 years old with a gray mohawk and small hoop earrings in each ear. He's a cancer survivor who's worked in retail and construction. He loves showing recruits how to do things the hard way out in the woods. Yingling is a 49-year-old Navy veteran. When I interviewed him, he was in training to be an EMT after getting laid off from his job as a machinist. He's tall and lean with close-cropped gray hair and a gray goatee. He's got this sort of permanent impish grin on his face, and he's more than a little cocky. Yingling is sort of a serial militia leader. The Pennsylvania Volunteers is the third such group he's led, and he's been at it for more than a decade. And maybe here is as good a place as any to pause for a quick definition of terms. Because what even is a militia, right? That's up for considerable debate. Some movement leaders argue that without formal ranks, you're not a militia. Some say the Constitution means every able-bodied man of a certain age is in the militia. I'm keeping it simple for this podcast. If you are a private group doing military-style weapons and tactical training for a possible conflict with an overstepping government, you're a militia. You'll hear later from Patriot Movement leaders who object to me calling their groups militias. But Yingling, he has no problem being called a militia leader. He sees himself as a politically neutral arbiter of First Amendment rights. People on the right think that people on the left don't have any rights. People on the left think that people on the right don't have any rights. And here we are in the middle going, yo, we all got rights. 
and that's why everybody hates us on both sides. <laughs> We're the most respected and hated militia out there. But, you know, to our credit, we're going on fucking 12 years of riding that line, and we haven't crossed it yet. I mean, right on, right? Hard to argue with that. Yingling definitely has a message that on the surface makes a lot of sense. But it's also based on one fundamental assumption that a lot of people don't agree with, that Yingling and his guys are the ones to protect those rights. You see, Yingling has made his name hopscotching all over the country, putting his militiamen in the middle of volatile protests. Some have turned violent, and his critics say he adds fuel to the fire. I should make something clear before going on. I don't think Yingling and Gardner look for violence, let alone plan it. I believe they genuinely think they're protecting free speech rights. If I were reporting at a protest and got injured, I have no doubt they'd try to help. But there's a legitimate question about the wisdom of what they do, whatever the motivation. Many people don't think their presence is helpful at tense events, where they're not invited. And being uninvited guests at tense events... It's kind of their thing. Like that time they went to a Black Lives Matter protest in West Virginia. They appointed themselves guardians against a KKK attack. We told them we were coming and they were like, we don't want you there. And we showed up anyway. That one went okay. There was no KKK attack, if there ever was one planned. Charlottesville, though, that was a different story. And it's another story Yingling likes to tell. Yingling heard there would be trouble there. Alt-right racists facing off against left-wing protesters. So he and his guys loaded up their body armor and weapons and hopped in their cars. They drove five hours and crossed three state lines to get there. And there was trouble. Charlottesville, of course, was the site of the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017. The one where a bunch of white guys with tiki torches chanted racist and anti-Semitic slogans. White nationalists gathered and squared off against anti-racist protesters. Yingling stood with his militia, armed and in tactical gear. He says his group rejects any type of bigotry. Yingling says his group was there to provide security to both right and left-wing demonstrators, and talks with pride about bandaging up a liberal protester with a head wound. As bad as Charlottesville was, it was probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to the modern militia. Why is that? Because that day demonstrated more clearly than ever in any time I can ever remember why we need a militia. Because the police made the, the, somebody in the higher ranking parts of their police department, their city government, made the political decision to not allow the police to do their jobs that day. But we were there. And we helped keep the peace for five and a half hours. To be clear, police were there. But an independent investigation found they failed to properly protect people at the rally. Ultimately, Charlottesville did turn deadly. A self-described white supremacist rammed his car into counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring more than 30 others. What if we hadn't been there? How do you think Charlottesville would have turned out if we hadn't been there? I don't know. There's a lot of people who... I can tell you how it would have turned out. Yeah. A lot more people would have got hurt. Yeah. A lot more people would have gotten hurt probably more people would have gotten killed. Plenty of people disagree, including a judge. The Pennsylvania Volunteers and two other militias were sued for their participation. All three groups were banned from coming to Charlottesville as a militia during rallies and protests. Yingling says his group helps at events like Charlottesville, but why them? There are whole organizations devoted to these type of things called police. Yingling doesn't buy it. People who hate the militia love to say, oh, well, the police got it under control. Do they really? Do they? Because I don't see it. 
And that takes us back to those mountains in Pennsylvania, where Yingling and his militia guys are training, preparing for operations like Charlottesville. Yingling gets his guys together once a month, out in a secluded tract of land. It's on top of a mountain overlooking rolling forests and rivers as far as the eye can see. It's several miles down a dirt road, and there's not a house for miles. What I'm saying is, it's exactly the kind of place where you'd expect to stumble upon a militia training. To get access, I had to promise not to be too specific about where it is. They're very hush-hush about all that. Why did they let me come when so many militias hate the media and Yingling's own guys complain about coverage? I think it's because they're proud of what they do. This training, it's part of the story and the lore, too. And Yingling is the chief storyteller. In a movement that can be hostile to reporters, Yingling stands out. He loves to talk. A lot. And he has many tales to tell. There's Charlottesville, of course, and there's also the Bundy Ranch. Yingling drove 41 hours to Nevada to participate in an armed standoff with federal agents there. One story really sticks out in my mind, though, because I think it's a window into how Yingling sees himself. As Yingling tells it, his group was in Boston in 2017, standing in between a bunch of Trump supporters and left-wing protesters. They're on the Boston Common, a public space. Yingling's guys are trying to create more space between the opposing protesters. So they asked the left-wing group to move back. And everybody moved back. There was no issues, you know, except for this one kid. And uh, he was one of the Antifa supporters. Whether or not the guy was Antifa or just a liberal protester, it's hard to confirm. And he just kind of stood there when everybody else moved back by himself. And, and I walked over to him and I said, hey, bud, I said, you know, I kind of need you to, uh, I need you to move back over the edge of the sidewalk. I said, I kind of want to keep the center area clear. And he just crossed his arms and he looked at me and he said, all defiantly, he's like, no, no, I think I'm going to stand right here. And I said, well, I said, you can stand right there. I said, or you can move back nicely. I said, but if you stand right there, I said, I'm probably going to shatter your knee and just drag you, drag you back there. I said, so I said, choice is yours. I said, how do you want to do this? And he moved back. <laughs> he moved back. Which, I mean, I was, I was kind of, I was impressed as hell with myself because, I mean, he was a big boy. He was. He was a big boy. I mean, I want to say he was every bit of like 6'2", probably 250. I mean, he was a big boy. Under whose authority were you telling him what to do on a public street, though? Under the police's. Under because Boston they, police. They asked us to move everybody back. Right. Yingling said Boston police sent way too few officers to control the crowds and that officers asked for his help. Boston police did not respond to a request for comment on Yingling's claim. Whatever the case may be, Yingling and his group of armed civilians took charge. But do you see how that could be confusing to people? I was just thinking about... Sure. But I mean, you know, there's a, I, I can give you a million and one things that can be confusing to people. In reality, the situation is no, I, I, I wasn't going to shatter his knee. I never would have broke the kid's leg. You know, not for just standing there, you know, but it was enough to make him change his mind. You know, it was no different than in Charlottesville. We may, we were all carrying guns, but that didn't mean we were just going to go down there and start blasting people if they didn't listen to us. Right. You know what I mean? It's, there's a certain, and I, I hate to use the word intimidation, but there's a certain degree of intimidation involved in doing what we do. There just is. You know what I mean? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There just is, you know. But when people are riled up, you need something to calm them down. Mm. 
You know, you, you can't just let people go into a situation like that where they are so emotionally charged that they're ready to start swinging and not have something to give you an edge. That edge that Yingling mentions, to be clear, that's a gun. And again, what business does some guy with a gun have to order people around, even if it's just to move back? You're giving him an order. You're, you're a civilian. You're giving him an order. No, I never gave him an order. I never gave him an order. Well, come on, though. You, no, you, you, no, said, no, you, said, you, were, you said you were going to bring your guys to move him back if he didn't move. Well, that's... But I didn't, did I? No, no, but you told me... But no, 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 no. See, this, you're not going to conflagrate this. You're right, you said the police asked... The police asked me. Right. Yeah, no, I know. I very politely asked him. Right. And he moved. After you said you chatter his name. Yeah. I know what I mean. Right, but... I didn't order him. I did not order him. I gave him a choice. I gave him a choice. Okay, let's be clear. There is no choice between moving and being maimed. It's an order. A threat, really. It's the contradiction of the Patriot movement. At times, its adherents simultaneously advocate for total freedom and total control. The government should have almost no control over your life. But the dudes with guns, if they tell you to move, you're supposed to move. It can feel like, don't tread on me, but don't complain if I tread on you. Inherent in the patriot movement's self-assigned name is that they are the true patriots, the ones protecting America. Many see themselves as keepers of the Founding Fathers' vision. They literally think they're defending the Republic from collapse, and their jurisdiction stretches from sea to shining sea. That worries experts like Daryl Johnson. We're in a period of heightened risk right now when it comes to political violence, given the rise of these groups, the recruitment and radicalization that's been ongoing for the past 11 years at least. Johnson has spent more than 25 years studying militias and other far-right movements. He used to track them for the federal government. Now he runs the extremism intelligence group, DT Analytics. Some blame former President Donald Trump for the rise in far-right groups. But Johnson says that's not quite right because these groups are established. And so I think it doesn't matter whether a Republican or a Democrat's in power because we're in for more of the same for the foreseeable future. Johnson was actually run out of government for sounding the alarm about far-right groups during the Obama administration. His 2009 report turned out to be prophetic. The other concerns I have are these militia groups uh, showing up at the protests as well as forming uh, protests themselves. Uh, for backing the blue, Flag Day, Patriots Day, what have you. Um, there have been some increasing um, street clashes. Uh, you can call them brawls, uh, fistfights, what have you, that have been breaking out between protesters and counter-protesters. Johnson also reminded me that there's a word for it when these kind of groups use violence to intimidate political opponents. Domestic terrorism. Back at camp in a pouring rain, Christian Yingling's men are gathered under a camouflage tarp. They're getting a crash course in first aid. You're going to pull right down here. You're going to check the pinks in the insides of his eyes. Make sure there's no blood collecting there, right? The men take notes on basics, like how to check for obstructed airways, find a heartbeat, and take blood pressure. One of them lays on his back as a mock casualty, and two others check for injuries. While he was doing his kind of head-to-toe assessment, One of you guys could have been checking his pulse. They are training for an emergency. Right now, they see emergencies everywhere. And Yingling worries out loud about what happens if that emergency 
turns into something he deems a constitutional crisis. What happens, and, and this is a question I fight with all the time, what happens when we have to break the law? So I genuinely uh, don't, don't know what you mean, so explain well, what you mean, but what would that situation be? If the government were to go, if the government were to turn full tyrannical, to basically just shred the Constitution and say, screw you and screw your rights, then the militia's going to stand up to that. We're going to stand with the people. The Second Amendment was not written so that Elmer Fudd could go out hunting on the weekends. The Second Amendment was written in case the government ever became tyrannical, so the people would have the means to stand up and fight back to protect their rights, their God-given rights. You know, so it, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that one day we may not end up breaking the law. I'm going to tell you as long as the government stays within their boundaries like they're supposed to, we won't. We won't. So that goes back to what I said to you before. What we do is completely 100% reactionary all the time, all the time. We react to what the government does. We react to what law enforcement does. You know, we don't go out and do things to elicit a reaction. We go out to re react to things that they elicited a reaction. So if you don't want the militia out there, well, then don't give us a reason to be. Those boundaries, Yingling sets them. He decides what the Constitution means. He decides when there's corruption. And he decides how to respond. Next time on Extremely American, the far right inserts itself into politics even more. In Idaho, the stronghold of the Patriot Movement, the infamous Bundy Ranch sniper and militia leader runs for state senate. The history of a peaceful transition of power in America is slowly going down the drain. I collect good men who are prepared to defend their neighbors. And a note before we go, since this show dealt briefly with suicide, if you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Extremely American was created by me, Heath Drusen. Story editing by Morgan Springer. Mixing and sound engineering by James Dawson. Original music by Micah Huang. Additional music from Artlist. Kim Palmero is the editor-in-chief and CEO of Post-Industrial Media. Thanks also to Boise State Public Radio, the exclusive public radio sponsor for this podcast. This podcast is made possible through the Candida Fund. Learn more at kendeda.com. And from the Joyce Foundation, joycefdn.org, with support from the Forbes Funds at forbesfunds.org. This podcast was produced in partnership with Post-Industrial Media. Post-Industrial covers people, culture, and ideas for post-industrial communities around the world. Visit postindustrial.com to learn how you can join the post-industrial community.